the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider, Slider is America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. So we have a lot of, I, I think, really important things to do today. Some foundational uh, background knowledge that when I learned this stuff really changed how I view uh, everything. Uh, it, it, this all makes sense in a second here. Let me, um, let's back it up. So it's about culture. The theme of the hour is culture and culture matters. Went to a 4th of July party the other day, asked a couple friends what they were reading, and two of my best friends friends were reading the same book called Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Black Rednecks and White Liberals. And one of my buddies said it was by a, a black economist. And I said, I said, Thomas Sowell? He said, ah, oh, yes, that's it, Thomas Sowell. Oh, Thomas Sowell's, you know, one of the greatest minds of our era. This, this is really important. It's not just that he's black. Uh, he's a genius. He's a titan. Uh, an intellectual heavyweight of the last 100 years. Now, I haven't read the book cover to cover. But the gist of what he did in this book was... And I look forward to reading the whole thing straight through. But what he did was track the migration patterns of people from Europe to America at dur- during the colonial stages. And when you track migration patterns with precision, the different subcultures that we have in America make a lot more sense. For example... Where did the colonists come from? The first colonists in America, the first sets of colonists, where did they come from? I think if you ask most people, they're going to say Europe. And that's right. Uh, But let's be a little more specific. Where in Europe? Most people will say England. That's right, too. But Sol's more precise. He found out that most of the Britons who migrated to colonial Massachusetts came from within a 60 mile radius of the town of Haverhill in East Anglia. So one specific town. Now those are the colonists who went to the colonial Massachusetts. Most of the Southern colonists came from the Northern badlands of England, which was this no man's land between Scotland and England and from the highlands of Ulster County, Ireland, which were all very similar areas. In the words of Thomas Sowell, all of these fringe areas were turbulent, if not lawless regions. These, these rural Scots, which again later became the southern colonists, they lived Pretty rough and tumble life. They, they lived in the same shelters with their animals and stuff like that. Those people of the, of the Scottish Badlands and from Haverhill and East Anglia were very different people. So when these two groups of people moved to the northern and southern colonies, they took their home subcultures with them. 
So let me quote Thomas Sowell here about the Southerners or the people who would become Southerners. He said, quote, the cultural values and social patterns prevalent among Southern whites included the aversion to work, proneness to violence, neglect of education, sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, lack of entrepreneurship, reckless searches for excitement, lively music and dance, and a style of religious oratory marked by strident rhetoric, unbridled emotions, and flamboyant imagery. And this oratory style carried over into the political oratory of the region in both the Jim Crow era and the Civil Rights era, and has continued on in our own times among black politicians, preachers, and activists. Also, touchy pride, vanity, and boastful self-dramatization were also part of this redneck culture among, among people from the regions of Britain where the civilization was the least developed. Northern England, Scotland, part of, Scot- uh, part of Scotland and Ireland. Are you with me so far? So Sol goes on and says that before there was such thing as black pride, there was cracker pride. And cracker pride was this touchiness about anything that might be perceived as a personal slight. And Yankees would look at Southerners and they were baffled at this. They couldn't understand. Yankees could, Northerners could not understand why, why the stupid Southerners were always fighting each other for no reason. By the way, the term cracker, you know where the term cracker came from? So most people think it came from uh, slavery era because the white man cracked the whip. So they were the cracker. It came well before that. Cracker was a term that was used in the Scottish Highlands to describe the poor farmers. The poor farmers who were pushed further and further inland where the land was terrible. And these crackers, the backwoods people of northern England and Scotland, they were called pinelanders, corn crackers, or just crackers. So the crackers from Northern England moved to the South and they took their cracker culture with them. They took their cracker pride well before slavery. The differences between these two groups of people, not only, I mean, I think, I hope it's obvious the difference, but it wasn't lost on the people of that era either. There was a boatload of these Ulster Scots that landed in Boston and the people of Boston wouldn't let them unload. <laughs> so like, oh, hey, great to see you guys. Where are you from? Oh, we're from, uh, from Ulster County. Oh, now back in the boat. Get, get out of here. You're not, no, not allowed. Back, go back. Where you, I don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. Like that. There was another boat of, of Ulster Scots that landed in Philly. And the people of Philadelphia made them settle in Western Pennsylvania as a buffer between them and the Indians. So there were, there were the, the, the Yankees, the people from East Anglia, uh, did not want to mingle with these crazy folk from North England. They didn't want to. They didn't want to mingle with them in England, and they don't want to mingle with them over here in the New World either. One last story about this, and then we'll make it relevant. When I say uh, cheese, what state do you think of? When I say milk and cheese, what state do you think of? Yes. Why do we all think of that state? Why do we all think of Wisconsin? Because that's where the German settlers migrated. But that's not all. 
there was actually more cattle in the South than in Wisconsin and the Midwest. So how did the Midwest become known as the dairy capital? It's because the German culture of farming was to build fences and huge barns for livestock that they could eat in, they could feed during the winter and stay healthy during the winter. The Southerners had more cattle, but their culture of raising cattle in Scotland, which they brought over with them, was to let the cattle roam free in the winter. There were no fences and there were no barns. So in the South, by the end of the winter, the cattle either died or wasn't healthy enough to produce a lot of milk. And this was true all the way until the 30s. In the 30s, cattle farmers in the South would only make enough milk to feed themselves. 26% of the country's dairy cows were in the South, but they only made 7% of the country's dairy products. Culture. Culture matters. Same thing with farming. So the people who, far, uh, who uh, landed in the Northeast, the colonists in the Northeast, they came from a part of England where hard work was valued. So when they would clear the land, they would cut down the trees, but they would also uproot the tree stumps. Right? They would dig deep, get rid of the tree stumps, fill it back in, and then plow over it. The Southerners came from a part of England that was, did not like hard work. So they would cut down the trees to clear the land, but they would leave the stumps and they would just plow around them. So the farms in the South were much less profitable. Southerners hated work because they came from a part of the world where they hated work. Also, the Scots didn't value education like the people from East Anglia who settled in Boston in the Northeast. Scots who settled in the South didn't value education as much. This is why Thomas Sowell and his personal experience, he was a black man growing up in the South, North Carolina. He was in the top of his class in North Carolina. But then he moved to Harlem and was in the bottom of his class. Harlem back then had excellent schools. So even, even to Southerners who could afford it, they just didn't buy books. It wasn't as important. Culture. Culture matters. Culture is everything. Now, Thomas Sowell takes this and he applies it to race today and black culture in particular. And his point is that while whites in the South have tended to move away from this culture, Black people in the South have adopted it and embraced it. Even language, the words axe instead of ask, dis instead of this, across instead of across, these are not black words. I mean, we may call it ebonics today or whatever, but these are not black words. These are not African words. This is the way that people talked in Scotland. In Northern England and Scotland, they said axe across dis. And they brought that over them with, uh, over here with them. White people tended to move away from it, but black people have taken it over and retained it. So we look at, we, we say, you know, axe, axe, but black person may say axe. And we think that that's like a black thing. No, it's a very, 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 very white thing. <laughs> it's, at least it started with very, very, very white people in Northern England. Isn't that amazing? I want to take a break here. I hope that was a, a, a good background here. But now, again, I want to bring it to today and make this incredibly relevant because when you see how much culture matters and how ingrained in it, in us it is, uh, well, I think then you see how much it, it matters, maybe even more than uh, you thought before. Bring it all together next. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to... 
Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. is Mike Slater. Culture is everything. That's my point here. It's all about culture and culture can change and some cultures should change. There's no reason to be proud of your culture if it results in bad outcomes. There's no reason to embrace a culture if it results in worse things. For an example, World War I, there were some uh, mental tests that were done, some intellectual, not IQ tests, but something like whites in southern states, where this culture that we just described, this 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 southern culture that was from the Scottish Highlands culture, where that still existed amongst white people too, for the you know most white people, um, so whites in southern states performed worse than black people in northern states. So it's not a race thing; it's a culture thing. The blacks in the north northern culture did better on these mental tests than whites in the southern culture. Nothing to do with race. It was the culture. There was another study of uh, black and white soldiers from World War II who married German women and lived in Germany and raised their kids in Germany. And the study looked at the IQs of their children. And the IQs of the, the kids of black soldiers or white soldiers was the exact same. Because they grew up in the same culture in Germany. There wasn't the split like there was here or there was at the time in America between the North and the South. Can we play clip uh, 1574? This is Thomas Sowell. Quote, quoting intellectuals and race, Professor Flynn concluded that the reason was that the offspring of black soldiers in Germany, and now you're quoting Professor Flynn, grew up in a nation with no black subculture. Close quote. Which means what? Which means they experienced exactly the same expectations. Is this the... They, no, no, no. The expectations are external. The culture in which they grew up with was, was not the culture in which black kids grew up in America today. So they had... There's no gangster rap. In, uh, that, that was pervasively uh, available in Germany. It is so, time. It is time that we identify and eliminate different subcultures in America. Not, 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 not by killing the people who are in them, but by encouraging people to get out of these subcultures because they're broken. And I want to talk a lot about the brokenness of these cultures, and I'm going to be very, very specific. I'm not going to talk in broad, general, vague terms. I'm going to be very specific about the things that are broken and how they're broken and prove that they're broken, if you can stay with me here. Let me give you some examples of about business ownership. So people today will look at the lack of locally owned businesses in, in uh, you know, black neighborhoods and blame racial discrimination or poverty or some such external thing. But in the 1920s, looking at Harlem, there were a ton of black owned businesses in the 1920s. A lot more racism back then. The thing is, most of those black businesses in Harlem in the 20s were owned by black people from the Caribbean, not black people from the South. 
prison population in the 1930s, blacks were overrepresented, as we're often told, in prison. But black people from the West Indies, from the Caribbean, were underrepresented based on their share of the population. One last example. Seoul says that in 1970, black families from the Caribbean living in America had 28% higher incomes than American blacks. The second generation of Caribbean families, black families, had incomes 58% higher than American blacks. So hold on. If, if that's true, that it can't be about race or racism because they're also black. What's the difference? Culture. They come from a different culture. Now today... Black Lives Matter, and, and, and it's really not even Black Lives Matter. It's, it's a, a elite white intellectuals, which we'll get to coming up too, but blame slavery for everything, for all the problems in the black community. It's racism, and the ultimate racism is slavery. Uh, and that's just not true. There may, there may be aspects of that which may be true, but it's not the full picture by any stretch of the imagination. We've said this before that, check this out, two and a half times as many white Europeans were taken as slaves by North African Muslims as Africans were taken as slaves in America. Two and a half times as many white people in Europe were taken as slaves by North African Muslims as Africans were taken as slaves in America. So under 400,000 uh, Africans were sent to America as slaves and it's a, a million White people were taken as slaves by North African Muslims. But that's a bit of an aside. The marriage, we'll look at slavery and just after slavery, the marriage rate of black families just after slavery was higher than white families at the time. The marriage rate of black families was higher than white families at the time. And today it's abysmal. Now, if you look at the disintegration of the black family, it didn't start, slavery couldn't even kill the black family. And the era after slavery and Jim Crow and all the rest could not kill the black family. But you know what did? 1960. The rise of the welfare state. The poverty rate of two parent black families has always been in the single digits. Let me say it again. The poverty rate of two parent black families has always been in the single digits. It's the single moms and the deadbeat dads. That's a new phenomenon in the last few decades. And it has nothing to do with race, nothing to do with race. It is culture and it has to stop. We can't be afraid to identify it. And we can't be afraid to say this has to stop because, and to go back to black pride, there's nothing black about it. It didn't, it's not from Africa. It's, it's not a black. It's not from the Caribbean. That's not the culture of most blacks in America, like the black community. That's not black. It's from North England, the Scottish Badlands, and Ulster County, Ireland, which again is very, very, very white. Nothing to do with race. It's a culture. It's a bad culture, and it has to stop got lots more coming up next Mike Slater show on the blaze radio network spread the word this is Mike Slater part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network
are listening to Mike Slater. All right, let's see. <laughs> uh, let's do this. All right, so there's two ways to stop the broken culture that, again, today, and there's a lot of different subcultures in America, right? But today, the one that I'm speaking of in particular is, is the black subculture, uh, which, again, has nothing to do with race because, as we've been explaining, and I'm not going to do this anymore, but it didn't, it's nothing, there's nothing uniquely black about it. Right? <laughs> it's not permanently impressed on black people. It did not come from black people. It is not, you know... It, um, uh, born within black people. It's not, it's not from black people. It started in Northern England and Scotland and has been embraced by black people. But just like it could be embraced, it means it can also be rejected, which is what it needs to be. So there's two ways to stop this. First, there's a prevalence in the black community to disparage black people who, quote, act white. There's a black club at Stanford, and the clip I want to play next, Peter Thiel talks about this, who, it's a, it's a club that bans black people who don't act black enough. That's absurd. So when people say to black kids, don't act white, don't study, don't work hard, all that, that not only is obviously obviously damaging and destructing, but it makes no sense. Because this so-called black culture that they're trying to keep that person in didn't start as a black culture. It's not a black culture. It's a bad culture. The second thing we have to do is to stop the race baiters. And I want to play a clip of Thomas Sowell coming up in the next segment that will change your paradigm big time on that. But before I get to Thomas Sowell, I want to play this clip from Peter Thiel. So this is a speech that Peter Thiel gave uh, 1996. He wrote a book a year that, that year or a year before uh, about multiculturalism and diversity. It's a five-minute clip, and I don't like playing five-minute clips. But I couldn't find a place to stop it. <laughs> it's just so good. Peter Thiel, by the way, uh, PayPal, the other big, big Silicon Valley guy. He's the one who spoke at the at Trump's Republican convention thing, right? But this was a long time ago. Again, this is 1996, well before uh, Trump was running for president. So um, this is about the lie, the fraud that is multiculturalism and diversity. Enjoy. Uh, sorry, 1575. Who is immensely accomplished in every way. Yes. Right. Uh, That's not the right one. Do we have, you know, you know what? I'm wrong. I'm wrong here. Sorry. We have a, sorry, everyone. This is live radio and we have a ton of clips. Um, Let me, I sent over the wrong Peter Thiel clip. I apologize. Let's skip to 76. Is that cool? Let's go to 1576. In terms of political leaders, all the all the incentives politically are for, for black leaders to blame all problems in the black community on the larger society. And that enables them to take on the role of being the defender of the black community against enemies, which in turn uh, creates the situation in which many blacks don't feel that anything that they do is going to is going to help themselves unless it's done politically as, as a group. That there's no point. I mean, why? Why would you, if you believe what the, what that's what they say, why would you want to knock yourself out in the school, knowing that the man is not going to let you get anywhere? Well, I, one of the most pathetic things I heard in recent years was a young black man saying that you know at one point he thought he would join the air force and become a pilot, 
And then he says he realized that the white man is not going to let a black man become a pilot. And he was saying this decades after the Tennessee Airmen had established their reputation in combat in Europe. You know, but, he, but the hopelessness, hopelessness is, is one of the big products of the, of the race industry. That, that you, have, you have no chance. I remember giving a talk at Marquette, and at the end of the talk, among the questions that was asked, a young, again, young black man got up and he said, even though I am graduating from Marquette a University, what hope is there for me? And uh, having gone through college when I was in the 50s, I don't remember any blacks saying that in the 1950s, when there was a lot more obstacles to overcome than there were when this guy is graduating from Marquette. But you, but you have to pr- pr- produce that kind of feeling in order to serve the interests of those in the race industry. Mm. Gosh, he's right. He said it's pathetic. Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad you have a student at, at Marquette University, a, major, a nice, great four-year university saying, I can't make it in the world because I'm black. Who says that? Who, or who told that kid that? The race baiters and elite progressive whites. That's who told him that. That's how destructive and damaging. They are peddling poison. And we say this a lot. We say these, these, they're poison peddlers. What's the poison they're peddling? Hopelessness. They're peddling hopelessness. My point is that this culture that, that elite whites and people like Jesse Jackson and the rest are keeping people stuck in is 100% not necessary. It's not necessary. It's damaging, it's destructive, and it's not necessary. This hopelessness that is being instilled in kids unnecessarily has to be countered with the truth. And the very first truth is there's nothing black about this culture. Let me, let me, let me read this one more time. Let me, uh, where we got... Okay. The, one of the truths is there's nothing black about the black culture of today. There's nothing uniquely black about it. So this is Thomas Sowell again in his book, uh, Black Rednecks and, and White Liberals, talking about the culture of Southern whites early in our country's history, which again was the culture of Northern England, Scottish Badlands, whatever. So I'm going to read this here and you can see this being applied to or you, you could as I'm reading this, you can think, oh, well, you're just you're describing like a black subculture today. No, <laughs> I, I, this is Thomas Sowell describing the Southern white subculture in the 17 and 1800s. And I want to read this again, just to prove that there's nothing black about the black subculture. So here it is. The uh, cultural values and social patterns prevalent among Southern whites included aversion to work, proneness to violence, neglect of education. It sounds like I'm describing inner city Chicago, sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, lack of entrepreneurship, reckless searches for excitement, lively music and dance, and a style of religious oratory marked by strident rhetoric, unbridled emotions, and flamboyant imagery. Touchy pride, vanity, boastful self-dramatization. And let me finish the rest of his sentence. We're also part of this redneck culture among people from regions of Britain. This black subculture has to die. But first, we have to be able to identify it and, and be able to articulately and intelligently describe why and how it's broken 
And I think maybe a first way of doing that is to describe is, is to say it's it's nothing to be proud of. It's nothing to hold on to. And there's nothing black about it. All right, I'll come back with that Peter Thiel clip. Sorry for that uh, that mistake. We'll do this next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. I found the right clip. I apologize. So this is Peter Thiel back in 96 talking about his book uh, specifically about multiculturalism and diversity and how that is a giant fraud. Enjoy. And I think um, the most critical point I want to make to you today is that these are euphemisms. Multicultural. Let's start with multiculturalism. Multiculturalism has next to nothing to do with the study of other cultures. I will repeat it. If there's a single thing I'd like you to take with you today, it is that multiculturalism has next to nothing to do with the study of other cultures. It is That may be a worthwhile thing to do in an increasingly global world, but that's not what it is about. You do not see students protesting on college campuses demanding um, missionary postings in third world countries to learn more about other societies. You do not have protests demanding more rigorous foreign language requirements. Uh, where people will protest uh, to learn Chinese or Swahili or Russian or anything of that sort. Again, it has nothing to do with other cultures. The same, I think, is true of diversity. This is another one of these incredibly misleading, euphemistic terms. It does not, to put it charitably, have much to do with a diversity of ideas. You do not have real diversity on a college campus when you have a campus full of people who look different but think alike. And again, I, I, I... I think this is very, very important as a starting point in framing the issue. Well, the question then becomes, well, what are these things really about? What is multiculturalism really about? And I will suggest to you that the single most important theme that runs through much that goes under the rubric of multicultural is that it is anti-Western. It is not non-Western. It is still focused very much on our own society, but it is primarily a vehicle for denouncing it. Uh, at Stanford University, which is the one I'm the most familiar with, but I think is certainly no exception to the rule, uh, the debate over multiculturalism in the late 80s started with a protest. The protest was against Western culture. The notorious chant was, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture's got to go. It was not a demand for inclusion. It was a demand for exclusion. Now, why does Western culture have to go? What is the problem with multiculturalism? And what problem does it have? The basic problem, the basic claim is the West is uniquely bad because it is racist, it is sexist, it is oppressive in a variety of other ways. Um, and not only is it, does it have all these problems, but it has them in a way that is far worse than other societies. That's where I think things get very, very problematic. The uh, multicultural educator at Stanford University liked to go around saying, I started looking for racism everywhere and I started finding racism everywhere. And indeed, he did. If you, if you start looking for anything everywhere, you will start finding it everywhere. If you are a feminist, and if you believe that everything is, that is longer than it is wide is a symbol of male oppression, then you will start finding sexism everywhere. If you, if you, want, to, um, if you want to find baseball everywhere, you can find baseball everywhere. 
And similarly, he could find racism everywhere. Let me just give you a couple of examples of how this process played out. Uh, there was an ongoing debate over boycotting table grapes. Why, what, and that, uh, the fact that table grapes were served in student residences was viewed as evidence of racism. Why? Well, because most of the grape pickers in California happened to be Latino farm workers, and they were exposed to dangerous pesticides, supposedly. Now, the fact that a grape boycott would get rid of their jobs was sort of irrelevant because, again, many of these things involve more moral posturing than real substantive concerns over these issues. There was similarly a debate over over what students are politically correct, politically incorrect. And again, if we want to talk about examples of political correctness, the uh, Black Student Union at Stanford for a number of years maintained something called a blacklist of students that were insufficiently black, uh, of black students who were insufficiently black, which meant that they did not have the ideological views that multiculturalism claims all blacks must hold. It, multiculturalism does not have to do with biology, it has to do with ideology. And the ideology across the board is this far left ideology. Now, I'll tell you what the problem is with looking for racism everywhere. Because when you start looking for racism everywhere and you start finding racism everywhere, it's only a very small step to finding racists everywhere. Now, there's nothing wrong with that if those racists are really out there, but I'm going to suggest to you that they really aren't. The problems of racism, sexism, other forms of oppression have been vastly exaggerated, and as a result, people get unjustly accused. A culture of complaint leads to a culture of blame, and that is ultimately the real problem with it. Um, let me just make one last comment, then we'll go on uh, from here. The, the other point that... And along these lines, let me suggest to you that multiculturalism and political correctness must be thought of as different sides of the same coin. The multicultural side is the side where we look for the victims. The politically correct side is the side where we go after the victimizers. The two are inextricably interconnected. You are not going, and that is why you will find the people who are the most multicultural are also the most politically correct. I do think things have gone way too far in the other direction today, where we have the sort of scorched earth strategy being waged against our own society. And I think, I think we have to find some sort of balance between the two. Now, I, I, it's always difficult to know exactly where you draw the balance, but I'd suggest to you one indicator, and I think one very important salient feature is, of course, that this whole multicultural debate over looking at racism, sexism, other forms of oppression is something that could only take place within the context of Western civilization, within the context of the civilization where individual rights, individual human rights became possible. And multiculturalists go too far when they forget that the very rhetoric that animates their debate is the rhetoric of the West. And they always that? forget that. Where is that, Bear? Uh, there's so much good. I'm sorry. Like, I, I hate playing five-minute clips, but that's, that's, that's so good. Uh, Peter Thiel right there. So I love at the end there, he said, multiculturalism looks for victims. I got an example of that I want to share coming up. Political correctness goes after the victimizers, right? The oppressors, the white man, the Western culture, et cetera. And it's really important to know that this fetish for multiculturalism isn't about learning about other cultures. It's about killing Western culture. If it was about learning about other cultures, that'd be great. No, no problem there. It's a wonderful thing. It's not. It's about killing, ending, villainizing, demeaning Western culture. And diversity is not about diversity. It's about eliminating the white man. Evergreen State College is a great example of this. We're not going to go all into it again, but remember the day of absence? They've had it for decades now where black people wouldn't show up on campus for a day. But this year they decided to, instead of just not showing up to campus, to forcibly remove white people from campus. 
There's a systematic elimination of Western canon, Shakespeare, et cetera, great art and artists of our Western culture because it's Western and because it's from predominantly white men. That is dangerous, wrong, absurd, and needs to stop. Do not believe this multiculturalism nonsense. Learn about other cultures, but also learn about Western culture. And understand why I've come to the conclusion, and you might have come to this conclusion as well, that Western culture is the best of them all. It's okay to think that. It's okay to say that. We got more about this coming up next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Cassette is America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. I forgot to mention that in the final hour, I want to play a little bit from an interview I did the other day with a World War II veteran. He's one of my all-time favorite people. His name's Bud. Um, I just have I have two clips. And they're two of the greatest things I've ever heard in my life. I, I don't, I'm not a good teaser in the business. You call it the tease coming up like that. I'm not really good at that, but I, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard ever. Uh, I'm going to put it up on my Facebook page too. So you can check it out. Uh, search for the Mike Slater show on Facebook, but we're going to talk about that coming up in the last hour. Uh, real quick. I want to wrap up this theme, at least for now about culture and how culture is everything. And I think once we all have this foundation knowledge of culture, it changes how at least I view everything, every story, every controversy, every policy related to welfare or many other things. Culture is everything. You know, Andrew Breitbart used to say that politics is downstream of culture, meaning if you want to change politics, you have to change culture first. Last hour, we talked a lot about big picture culture, like American culture and black culture and uh, culture from East Anglia, England and the Scottish Badlands. These are like big picture culture. But today or this hour, I want to talk about small term culture or micro culture, which is really just a family, a family's set of values and a, and a person's set of values. Theodore Dalrymple, uh, really like his writing. That's his pen name. He is a British psychiatrist who works at worked at the poorest hospital and different prisons in England. And he wrote a book a couple years back called Life at the Bottom, The Worldview That Makes the Underclass. Full disclosure, I have not I have not read it. I look forward to reading it very soon. Uh, but this, I've read a bunch of book reviews and articles that he's written that make up the book. Uh, I just want to read this one uh, review of it. Dalrymple's key insight in this book is that long-term poverty is not caused by economics, but by a dysfunctional set of values. Now, quick time out here. Think of the insight that this man's had for decades of his life, working with people in the poorest hospitals and prisons in England. He's seen it multiple times every single day for decades, a dysfunctional set of values which led people to where they are. One, 
uh, this dysfunctional set of values, one that is continually reinforced by an elite culture searching for victims. That goes back to Peter Thiel's argument about um, multiculturalism, which is really just searching for racism, searching for victims. This culture persuades those at the bottom that they have no responsibility for their actions and are not the molders of their own lives. Hence, Thomas Sowell saying he was at Marquette. Black student stands up and says, I have no hope in my life, et cetera, et cetera. He's like, what are you talking about? You have more opportunity than certainly I had 50 years ago. Dalrymple says you cannot take any people of any color and exempt them from the requirements of civilization including work, behavioral standards, personal responsibility, and all the other basic things that the clever intelligentsia, the the elite, disdain. You can't exempt people from the requirements of civilization without ruinous consequences to them and to society at large. I, I don't get what the heck is wrong with us. Not only that we would do this to people in the first place, exempt them from the requirements of civilization. What is wrong with us that we would do this to anyone in the first place? But... What's wrong with us today that we still ignore what we've done and double down on it? George Will wrote an editorial just a couple days ago entitled, What If the Major Causes of Poverty Are Behavioral? What if the major causes of poverty are behavioral? Of course they are. This is so un-PC, like no one's allowed to talk like this. Yeah, of course, of course they're behavioral. Now listen, there's certain circumstances. Some people grow up and this happens that that's out of, so they're, but, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. But for 99% of people, it's behavioral. The number one way to avoid poverty is to follow what is called the success sequence. The success sequence, which is four steps. First, graduate high school. Second step, get a job. Any job, doesn't matter. Just get a job. Third, get married. Fourth, then have kids. That order. High school, get a job, get married, then have kids. Of people who follow that sequence... Only 3% are poor. Only 3% are poor. Follow the sequence. Oh, wait a second. I got so many more directions I can go in here. Um, let me play this clip here. Let's cut right to the clip. Well, let, let, does, does that make sense? Everything we just said so far. So poverty is mostly caused by bad personal decisions. Now, okay, let me go this direction real quick. If that's true, which I think it is, then let's just look at economic inequality. If it's true that poverty is mostly caused by bad personal decisions, let's say having kids before you're married, for instance, or not graduating high school or not getting a job, whatever, right? Bad decisions in your life. If that's the main drive of poverty, let's look at economic inequality. They say the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poor. That's not true. Everyone's getting richer. It's just the rich are getting richer faster and at a greater rate 
then the poor are getting richer. But let's say, for the sake of argument here, that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. We look at that, and most people would look at that and say, oh, that's a failure of capitalism. Well, maybe it's not a failure of capitalism. Maybe that's exactly how capitalism is supposed to work. Maybe this, rich getting richer, poor getting poorer, is the natural consequence of some people making good decisions and some people making bad decisions. And maybe the reason that the poor are getting richer isn't because they're taking money from the poor. Maybe it's because most poor people are making bad decisions with their lives. It's funny. Why do you even feel ashamed to think this? Because society says that the poor and criminals, by the way, but the poor are victims. Society has preached to you that poor people are victims. Not people who are in charge of their own destiny. I want to get to that coming up in a second here, but let's end this segment on this clip here. This is Larry Elder, who's a black conservative, on Dave Rubin's show. So Dave Rubin uh, was a progressive. Now he's a liberal, uh, but he's seeing the light in his show, which I enjoy very much on YouTube. Uh, and he's not afraid to talk to conservatives. The interview starts off like this. This is 1577. But you wouldn't not acknowledge that there are some systemic issues. Give, give me an example. Get, tell me what you think the most systemic racist issue is. What is it? Well, I would say that because black people in most cases, in many cases, were descendants of slaves, that racism as, a, as an institution, that it just, a certain amount of it just exists. In 2015? I, it, that give, give me the most blatant racist example you can come up with right now. Um, I think you could probably find evidence that in general, cops are that, that cops are more willing to shoot if the uh, perpetrator is black. What's your data? Than for, white. What's your basis for saying that? Last year. The, well, look, I know a lot of people would say, "Look what's going on in Chicago." I, I, I know what they would say. Yeah. I'm talking about what the facts are. 965 people were shot by cops last uh, last year and killed. Four percent of them were white cops shooting unarmed blacks. In, in Chicago in 2011, 21 people were shot and killed by cops. Uh, in 2015, there were seven. Uh, in Chicago, which is a third black, a third white, and a third Hispanic, 70% of the homicides are black on black. Uh, about 40 per month, almost 500 uh, in the year, per year last year in Chicago, and 75% of them are unsolved. Where is the Black Lives Matter on that? The idea that a racist white cop uh, and shooting unarmed black people is a peril to black people is BS. It's yeah. complete and total BS. And, and the reason for these so-called activists saying this is the assumption that racism remains a major problem in America. The media, CNN, especially MSNBC, runs down whenever a black cop shoots somebody, uh, and, and it's a, some, some march on Washington. It's ridiculous. Uh, black people, half the homicides in this country are committed by and against black people. Last year, there were 14,000 homicides, not talking about suicides, I'm talking about homicides. Mm -hmm. um, half of them were black, 96% of them black on black of that 7,000. Where's a black... black Black Lives Matter people on that. So that, there's where you would say that this is purely because of social justice. This Pure, is purely because. They, so he goes on and, and he just obliterates that whole argument. Uh, but I want to skip ahead to this point because this is first the cause of the problem, and then ultimately, which what what we deal with on this show, the solution to the problem. Next clip. 
people. Uh, the, 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 the problem, the, the biggest burden that black people have, in my opinion, again, is the percentage of blacks, 75% of them, that are raised without fathers. Uh, and that has every other social negative consequence connected to it. Crime, uh, not being uh, able to compete economically in the country, being more likely to be arrested, that's the number one problem facing the black community. And when I hear people tell me about systemic racism or unconscious racism, I always say, give me an example, and almost nobody can do it. So, so the family stuff, so mm -hmm. I'll, I'll follow your logic there mm -hmm. on the family stuff. What, what can actually be done about that then? I mean, what, because that's, reverse, a, that's a big... Reverse lift. the welfare state. Uh, in um, 1890, 1900, you look at census reports, a black kid, believe it or not, was slightly more likely to be born to a nuclear intact family than a white kid. Even during slavery, uh, a black kid was more likely to be born under a roof with his biological mother and biological father than today. What's happened is we launched this so-called war on poverty in the 60s where literally Lyndon Johnson sent people walk, knocking on doors. I, I, I lived in the 60s, and people knocked on doors, apprising women of their availability to welfare, provided there was no man in the house. Uh, and we went from 25% of blacks being born outside of wedlock in 65 to 75% right now. And you look at how much money that we spent on welfare, uh, and the lines are parallel. It was a neutron bomb dropped on this country, not just on the black community, but on people in general. Uh, at one time, only about 5% of whites were born outside of wedlock. Now, 25% of whites are born outside of wedlock. I was in college in 1970, and there was a report called the Moynihan Report, uh, The Negro Family, A Case for National Action. It was written by a liberal, by a man who became uh, a Democratic senator for the, from, from New York. And at the time, 25% of black kids were born outside of wedlock. He said, my God, this number is, is horrific. If we don't do something about it, it could get even higher. Well, fast forward, 25% of white kids are now born outside of wedlock. It is the number one problem in this country. And what we've done, in my opinion, is we've economically incentivized women to marry the government. And we've allowed men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. And now we have this. Amazing. And... Hey, that's Larry Elder on Dave Rubin's show. And the root of all of this is culture, which, as we proved in the last hour, isn't even a black thing. I'm going to say this again. I'm going to say it again just so we can all know this deep down in our hearts and souls and minds right now. Black culture is not a thing. It's not, it's not a black thing because black people in other parts of the, the world don't have the same culture. It was a southern thing, which was a northern England and Scottish thing the original colonists to that region. Kill this culture. Kill it dead. But it's the white elites who keep it going more than anyone, and they do that for their own power and their own gain. One more point I want to make about all this coming up next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. All right, so this is actually the, what I really wanted to play about this uh, Larry Elder, Dave Rubin clip. So Dave Rubin, white guy, f liberal, but seeing the light about things. Uh, listen to his response. So we just talked about, you know, black culture and uh, shootings. And, and Larry Elder said, name like the biggest aspect of racism in America today. And he really couldn't. Uh, all right, so check this out, 1580. 
Yeah. Absurd. So it's funny, I find myself caught in between this a little bit as a liberal where I want to always try to defend the other. So in this case, the other being black people, I, I'm always sympathetic to that. And that, uh, yeah, yeah, at the same time, I hear you laying out a pretty solid well, case. Well, these are just the facts. Right, stop here, stop here. This is, that's so interesting, that clip. He said, oh, you know, I'm caught in between. What are you caught in between? He's caught in between this progressive worldview that you need to care for the oppressed, the other, right? This false compassion for the other. That's what, if I'm a liberal, I have to care about the other. So I'm torn between that and the truth, facts, reality, right? He's like, oh, you know, I'm torn as a liberal. I have to, you know, I have to always knee jerk, be on side of the other, but you just laid out a pretty compelling case of reality, Unbelievable. So Dave Rubin is soaked so long in this liberal worldview that he always has to be on the lookout for victims, for the oppressed, for groups of people who are oppressed, which is exactly what Peter Thiel was talking about in that clip we played a couple segments ago. And we're so inclined, we're so told that black people are oppressed that even in the face of overwhelming evidence, in, in this particular case about police shootings, overwhelming evidence laid out as clearly and objectively as possible the best that Larry Elder could do with Dave Rubin was to get him to say, well, I'm caught between, which actually is a pretty big victory to move someone that far with facts, right? Um, to go from, I'm definitely on the side of, quote, the other, uh, to, well, I'm caught between, right? That's a pretty big victory, actually. But isn't that fascinating how progressives only see the world in terms of oppressed and oppressor? And he has this knee-jerk reaction that he has to side with what he views or what society has told him is the oppressed because he's a liberal. That's what liberals do as opposed to defending the truth and looking at what is true. I think I got time for one more clip here. This is uh, 1581. This is a University of Toronto professor, Jordan Peterson, and he's talking about postmodern Marxists and progressives. Here it is. They believe that you, since you don't have an individual identity, your fundamental identity is group-fostered. And that means that you're basically an exemplar of your race, hence white privilege, or you're an exemplar of your gender or your sex or your ethnicity, or you're an exemplar of however you can be classified so that you, you are placed in the position of victim against the oppressor, because that's the game. And it's, it's a, it's a post-Marxist sleight of hand, right? The old Marxist notion was that the world was a battleground between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and that uh, failed to have any philosophical or ethical standing, that argument after the working class actually saw its standard of living massively elevated as a consequence of, of Western corporate democracy, uh, Western free enterprise democracy. And also, be, and, and also as a consequence of the revelations of everything terrible that had happened in every bloody country that ever dared to make equity and, and, and the Marxist communist dogma part of their fundamental structure, right? And nothing but murderousness and oppression. And so by the 1970s, it was evident that that game was up. The, post -mark, the postmodernist Marxists just barely, basically pulled a sleight of hand and said, okay, if it's not the poor against the rich, it's the oppressed against the oppressor. We'll just redivide the subpopulations in ways that make our, our bloody philosophy continue in its, in, its, in its movement forward, and that's where we're at now. And so for the postmodernists, the world is a Hobbesian battleground of identity groups. They do not communicate with one another because they can't. 
All there is is a struggle for power. And if you're in the predator group, which means you're an oppressor, then you better look out because you're not exactly welcome, uh, not exactly welcome, and neither are your ideas. So that's what you're up against. I would say it's time for conservatives to stop apologizing for being conservatives. You know, and stop there. Um, we're going to take a break here in a few seconds. I want to share a story coming up in the next hour, very short, um, of someone who desperately, desperately needs to be a victim because she has grown up in a society that says, if you are poor, you are virtuous. If you are a criminal, you are just a victim, <laughs> which is weird. You, you can like you as a conservative probably can't even comprehend that. Like if you're a criminal, you're a victim. Yes. And this, this girl who by every standard would be deemed a success, can't settle. She can't be happy with that because in her world, you can only be virtuous if you're a victim. So she's desperately seeking victimhood. I'll share that story next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Crusaders. One last Jordan Peterson clip, if you don't mind. He is um, professor at the University of Toronto, and here he's given a speech just recently. And I love this because uh, I, I feel this all the time uh, when I see, when I hear people complaining about things. Here it is, fifteen eighty two. Compared to the rest of the world and the plight of other societies throughout the history of mankind, we're doing pretty damn well, and we should be happy to be living in the society that we're living in. So the first thing that you might want to note about postmodernism is that it doesn't have a shred of gratitude. And there's something pathologically wrong with a person who does have, doesn't have any gratitude, especially when they live in what so far is the best of all possible worlds. And so if you're not grateful, you're driven by resentment. And resentment is about the worst emotion that you can possibly experience apart from arrogance. Resentment, arrogance, and deceit. There's an evil triad for you. And if you're bitter about everything that's happening around you, despite the fact that you're bathed in wealth, then there's something absolutely wrong with you. You know, the black community in the United States is the 18th wealthiest community, 18th wealthiest nation on the planet. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't such a thing as relative poverty. And relative poverty matters. It's an important, it's an important political economic issue, and it's very, very difficult to deal with. But absolute wealth matters too, and, and Western societies have been absolutely remarkable in their ability to generate and distribute wealth, as you can tell by just looking around and taking a, you know, a brief bit of consideration for the absolute miracle that even a building like this represents. So you have to educate yourself about postmodernism. The five emotions and values, I should say, that are most necessary to live a fulfilled life are curiosity, zest, hope, love, and gratitude. 
if you live a life where you are constantly looking for victimhood and making excuses and blaming things from hundreds of years ago for your own failures and, and, and situation, then you don't have any of those five things, least of all gratitude. Oh, the story I was going to share, I almost forgot. So uh, this was published just a couple weeks ago in our local newspaper here. Uh, this is a girl who came to America from Mexico. I think she was eight years old. She went to a good public school, got really bad grades. She was told by a teacher that she had to learn English. So she did, and she buckled down. She got on honor roll, and she graduated high school, and now she's a journalism major at San Diego State University. And she wrote an editorial complaining about her life because she had to, quote, leave her culture behind when her teacher in elementary school told her she had to speak English. She had to leave her culture behind in order to be successful in America, which is so ridiculously absurd. I, I, first of all, you didn't have to leave anything behind when you learn English. You can still speak Spanish. Like I don't, what, what, But the point is, I'm not even going to dignify her ridiculous argument with anything other than the observation that she has to be a victim. And you can't even blame her because she's only known this idea growing up in America where you have to be a victim, where your virtue comes from victimhood. By every standard of human existence, she has made it. She is successful or well on her way, right? She's going to graduate from a four-year university and be a go journalism major and go on and provide for her family, et cetera, et cetera. She's successful, but she has to look back and find a way to be categorized as a victim. She has to find a way to be seen as oppressed because that's how you truly achieve virtue. The only way to be virtuous is to be a victim. The only way to be virtuous is to be oppressed. That's what she believes because that's what our culture says and it is sad. What a perfect example other than saying, wow, how amazing it is that I'm here in Mexico, uh, here in America where I'm now, you know, I graduated and I'm going to college and I'm going to graduate. And I'm going to have a great job, et cetera, et cetera. How amazing is it? Like, gosh, what would I be if I was still back in Mexico living in poverty, blah, blah, blah. That's gratitude. She has none. She's miserable. That's really sad. I hope, gosh, we've been talking about this for an hour and 40 minutes. <laughs> I could talk about it forever. Culture is everything. Let me wrap up this discussion, then we'll get to Bud, uh, World War II veteran Bud, and this will just, he's amazing. Um, but I want to share a quick story here of Yuri Bezmenov. Yuri was a Soviet KGB agent. He went to India and then defected to uh, Canada, actually, but he wrote a book called Love Letter to America, warning us about the Soviet art of deception. Because in that part of the world, the greatest way to win a battle is to not fight it. The culture of that part of the world, the cultures of that part of the world says the best way to win a battle is to not fight it at all. This was true of Sun Tzu in China, Genghis Khan in Mongolia, and Russian culture as well. The goal is to either meet your enemy with such superior force that they run away and you don't have to fight, or deceive them so that you win without fighting anyway. So here's this KGB agent who came to America 
and talked about things that a the KGB has specifically done to deceive the West and America, or things that Western intellectuals have done on their own, which has the same end result either way. Four things, three I think stand up, hundred percent. The first, corrupt the young, get them interested in sex, take them away from religion, make them superficial and enfeebled. Do we even need to talk about how that has come true? Number two, divide the people into hostile groups by constantly harping on controversial issues of no importance. Turn on CNN right now. I have no idea what they're talking about, but I guarantee you it is of zero importance. But there will be people on the TV harping about it. Number three, destroy people's faith in their national leaders by holding up, holding them up for contempt, ridicule, and disgrace. Of course, we see that. And finally, always preach democracy, but seize power as fast and as ruthlessly as possible. Which is, you see with the protesters when they say, this is what democracy looks like. And it's like, they riot and they're violent. <laughs> like, well, yeah, I guess that is. Um, so the, again, this, do we, I don't think we need any examples of all these things. But two quick quotes from this gentleman in his book. And then I want to make the big point in the next segment. First on education, he said the American romance with state-run education as encouraged by KGB subverters, has, been, has already produced generations of graduates who cannot spell, cannot find Nicaragua on a world map, and cannot think creatively and independently. Of course, we know that's true. And finally, a theme that we've had the last few months has been the foolishness of news entertainment. And uh, this KGB agent says, an issue that may benefit a few is a non-issue. He says civil rights of homosexuals is not an issue. Defending sexual morality is the larger real issue. He says the main purpose of non-issues and the devastating result of their introduction is the sidetracking of public opinion, energy, money, and time from the constructive solutions. Soviet propaganda elevated the art of infiltrating and emphasizing non-issues in American public life to the level of actual state policy. All this distraction was done on purpose. Or, if it's not done on purpose, by some people, it plays right into the hands of those who want to do it on purpose. But the big point is equality, and that's what I want to talk about next. But do you see the importance of culture? It's everything. From the language we speak, how we view the world, how we view work and family and children and what is good and what is true and what is beautiful and what is valued and what is not valued. Politics is downstream of culture. Everything is downstream of culture. Now, here's the good news. You are the culture center. In your home, in your family, it is 100% up to you and no one else. The culture you set in your home. And how you raise your kids and how you act at work and how you act around your friend, et cetera, et cetera. You are culture setters. That's what I find so empowering about this whole conversation. I hope it hasn't been discouraging. I hope it's been enlightening and revealing, not discouraging. And it should be super empowering because you set the culture every single moment of every single day. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. 
Slater. Slater Crusader. So, talking about this former KGB agent and talking about how they take an idea of truth and then distort it. And he said, one of the, the things that we do this the most with, or, or has been the most successful, is the idea of equality. The idea that people born equal are born equal, therefore they must be equal. That sounds great, right? But it makes no sense. No one's born equal in any way whatsoever. At all. We're not even born the same weight. Let alone the same physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all the rest. We're born equally before the law. But that's it. But so in any other way, we're not equal. So what we have to do then is now legislate equality. So now you have those who are less equal demanding more from those who are more equal. That has to be done by law, which introduces a third party into the equation known as the government. And they take from some and give to others so that we can achieve this utopian vision of equality. Let let me quote from this KGB guy. He says, the beauty of the best and most successful political and economic system created by the founding fathers of America is that it has nothing to do with legislated or enforced equality. The American Republic is based on the principle of equal opportunities for unequal and very different and diverse individuals to develop their abilities and to coexist in mutually beneficial cooperation. And that is entirely a different story. That much I knew even from the Soviet textbooks of American history. Now, we get that, right? There's nothing new there. You've heard that a million times. But let's go to the next step. Like what happens now if we have this false idea of equality? We got the people who are unequal, the people who have less. And in a culture where it's all about material things, it's all about money. I mean, you got the race baiters who claim you have no hope because of your race, which we've been talking about. You have the income inequality baiters who claim that you can't achieve happiness because you don't have as much money as some other person, which is a total lie. Money has zero to do with happiness. There's all these studies, but above some very, very, very small minimum income, anything above that, has zero correlation to happiness whatsoever. So money does not bring happiness. That's been proven a million times over and over. But the income inequality baiters will tell you that that's what it's all about. And the goal here, or at least the end result, is to make everyone miserable because they're less equal or guilty because they're more. The poor are miserable and the wealthy are guilty. Why is this important? This is the KGB agent. He says, unhappy and discontent people are less productive than those who are happy being what they are and making the best of it. Decreased productivity, as we all know, leads to such unpleasant things as inflation, unemployment, and recession. These, in turn, cause social unrest and instability, both economic and political. Chronic instability breeds radicalism as a means of solving problems. And radicalism is the precondition of a power struggle which has often resulted in violent and forceful replacements. And if the situation deteriorates badly, this KGB agent says, this replacement takes ugly forms of internal civil war or revolution or invitation of a, quote, friendly and fraternal neighbor and finally ends up in the traditional way. More state control. And any nation is able to do this with herself, is able to do this to herself without any help from my comrades and their numerous KGB agents. And any one of you in America easily can observe this vicious chain of events 
by simply reading your newspaper or watching TV. This has to stop. All of it. All this nonsense. The hatred, the anger, the materialism, the guilt, the shame, the hopelessness. It's all a lie. It's all a lie. I'll never forget. About a year or so ago on my local show, we had a listener call in. An older black man. So full of wisdom. And and I I forget what we were even talking about uh, that made him call in. But he called in and he talked about Ultimately, we got talking about how he really doesn't have a lot of money. But... It doesn't matter because he has a place to rest his head and he has food and he has friends and he has family and his life is good. He's living a good, successful life. Coming up, we're going to talk about or play an interview I did with a World War II veteran, Bud. And, and we're going to talk about growing up in the Depression in Brooklyn where he said we were so dirt poor, but we didn't even know it. My grandpa, you ask him about his childhood. He remembers playing baseball with his friends. And he tells me stories of riding the trolley with his dad and just lights up. We sold such a bill of goods when it comes to happiness and we are lied to by people who want power. They're the ones preventing you from being happy. Well, you following them is preventing yourself, but you know what I mean? It's got to stop. The people who are preaching this to you, they don't want you to be happy. They want power for themselves. Last quote from the KGB guy. He says, this is all happening, but it's happening slowly. He says, that's exactly how it's intended to be. Like the small hand of your watch, you know it moves, but you cannot see it moving. We got World War II veteran Bud coming up next. Don't miss it. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater said, America's the greatest country in the world, and it's because of people like Bud Fink, and that's what I want to, uh, who I want to introduce to you next. So the day before 4th of July weekend on my local show, I got to talk to uh, a man who I've spoken to a few times, but he uh, it gets better and better every time. Two clips I want to play from Bud. The whole interview is on my Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Every second is gold. It's perfect. He's amazing. He's 91 years old, sharp as a tack. There's two stories here I want to share. No real particular order here. Um, He, on my local show, he's known as Bud, the streets are paved with gold, Fink. Uh, There's a reason for that. That's the second clip I want to play. But I want to start off with this one. Uh, This is the story of Bud Fink during World War II, landing in France. Uh, and ultimately, he went on to go serve in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, but here's, here's the story of him getting to Normandy for the first time. Here it is. My outfit uh, came up through southern France. They came over from Italy and uh, stoned the beaches in southern France, came up that way, and I joined the outfit when they were up in northern France, mm. up, up in uh, the Vosges Mountains and the Combat Pocket. About a month before the Bulge broke out, I got over there. And 
and uh, we pulled into La Havre, and it took two weeks to get over. You know, in those days, you didn't have uh, planes to fly you over, and it was zigzagged all the way because of submarines. And mm. we pulled into La Havre, and the whole harbor, everything was completely destroyed. Before the Germans left, they blew everything up, every crane, every dock, every you name it. So it's November, and November in Europe is cold. The only thing I remember about European winters is the skies were always gray. It was either snow flurries or snow or rain or some damp. They never had a pleasant day. Anyway, we got to get off that ship. We had about 5,000 guys on that ship. And uh, to get off, the only way we're going to get off is in landing craft. So they pull up the Coast Guard was there, and they pulled up their landing barges up alongside, and they threw over cargo nets, and we're carrying about 60 pounds of equipment. I'm one of the first guys over. I was in the first line, and over we go, climbing down those cargo nets and jammed up, jam us into these landing crafts. I'm up front, and we pull to shore. And then the ramp goes down. And my God, I'm about 50, 60 yards from shore. I said, what are you guys kidding? I couldn't say another word. I was pushed off into water up to my chest. Freezing cold. (laughs) I got ashore. And we all went through that. Everybody just couldn't get close enough to the shore. And we went into that cold water and lined up in the streets of uh, La Havre and marched through the streets freezing, soaking wet and cold. And they took us to an open field, and they said, okay, boys, rack out. I said, you guys got to be kidding. What do we rack out? That's nothing but a muddy field. <laughs> and they said, welcome to the ETO, European Theater of Operation. And that's just what we did. Oh. Racked out in that muddy field and... You know what? We slept. I I took part of a shelter half and wrapped myself around that, but that was not very warm. <laughs> I imagine the scene there. You, um, uh, there, there's so much amazing things to talk. So first of all, Buzz does this throughout the entire interview. He'll speak. He'll he'll say something like. Oh, the weather was just awful. I remember in, in uh, England, there was never, it was always either raining or snowing or damp in some way. You just never had a pleasant day. Anyway, so we got there and went, <laughs> it's like, but like, he'll do that with like super serious, awful things. And just, anyway, so we have a, uh, a, a Slater family rule for the men in the Slater home. And there's five things that the Slater men never complain about. You're not allowed to complain about being hot. Cold, tired, hungry, or bored. Slater men are not allowed to complain about being hot, tired, hot, cold, tired, hungry, or bored. Not allowed. Now, you can say, I'm cold, as a statement of fact, but you can never do the, oh, I'm cold. Not allowed. Because I'm doing my darndest to raise my son, who's nine months, to understand how miraculous and unprecedented it is in the totality of human experience, to be able to control the temperature of your surrounding. And in America in 2017, if you are cold in a specific moment, you will not be cold for long. Because somewhere in your very near future, like possibly within minutes, you will be warm again. 
you will be wrapped in a blanket. You can take a hot shower. You can uh, go by a fire. There's like a million options here to get warm again. Maybe 4th of July, you went out and, and watched fireworks. Maybe it was cold where you were. So you're, you're, you're outside, watch the fireworks. Like, oh, it's a bit cold. Six minutes later, you were back in your car with the heater on. <laughs> right? If you've ever been hungry in your life, what's the longest you've ever gone without getting food to remedy that problem? A couple hours, maybe. Uh, you'll survive, right? So that's why Jack's not allowed to complain about these things, and I'm not either. Our kids need to understand what life has always been like for humans and what life was like for these World War II vets and even our service members today. Rack out. Rack out. Where? <laughs> In this freezing cold, muddy field? Yep. What do you want? A hot tub and a nice warm bed? You want a little turnover service? You want a nice little chocolate on your on your pillow? I want to take a break here. If we have time, I want to share a story of the sausage war, which is a war that no one's ever heard of. Um, but I want to come back and give enough time for Bud's main story, which is the story of all stories. When we talked to Bud before 4th of July, you know, I wanted to talk about uh, his service and how he became a tank commander at 17 and stuff like that. And we did a little bit, but most of it was about growing up in the Depression. And it was incredibly powerful. The full interview is on our Facebook page. Please search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook or Slater Radio on Twitter. We put it there as well. Uh, you can hear the whole thing, but you have to hear this story we're going to play next. And I guarantee you, you will share it with your family. If you hear this story, you will not be able to not share it with your kids. I brought, you will tell them around. You will tell everyone you know this story. It's that amazing. Got it next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, this is uh, what Bud is mostly known for on, on my local show. Uh, World War II veteran Bud. Would love talking to him. Let me just give you an example of like what a quick, funny guy he is. At the end of our interview, we spent an hour together. I said, Bud, I love talking to you. I can't go another year without talking to you again. And he goes, You can't go another year. I'm 91. <laughs> all right so he's awesome you're gonna hear from him again uh again full interviews on our facebook page search for the mike slater show on facebook but we started off talking about the depression and we talked about discipline in schools when he was going to public school in new york city discipline at home but in school no talking allowed in the hallways public school no talking in hallways talked about how there were no organized sports or games for, for kids and all the boys would go home after school and, and steal their mom's broomstick. He would, and, and they'd play stickball in the streets looking out for the cars. Just so many amazing stories like that. But I want to play this one because this is, I think, the best of them all. It's one of my favorite stories I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, here it is. Enjoy. Each district had a draft board, and the draft board from Washington got orders this month. We want... Forty people out of your draft board, out of your out of your section. 
So they naturally would look at see what's what's left, and what we got left is two families, uh, two and three kids, and Washington couldn't give a rat's nose for what they were thinking. They said we want them, and they had to draft them. So there were all kinds of uh, levels. Of, of men in the army. I mean, I hear I was 17. There were guys. My best friend, a guy by the name of Florian Floyd Florek. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I don't think this is the right clip, bro. He had three kids. Does, is this 1442? He, he Does this start at 1442? <laughs> Son of a gun. That is not. Yeah. Can you check one more time? I don't know. But on my, on my computer, 14. Sorry, again, live radio. We have a ton of sound clips today. On my, on my computer, 1442 starts out very different. Yes, yeah, the same the same link we played the last one on. Yeah, even if you if you literally the same uh, the same link I sent over last one. Sorry, so like I we could have just played anywhere in the hour clip and it would have been great. But I want I want to make sure I give you the exact. All right, let's try this one again. Sorry. Well. Yeah, my grandparents, of course, uh, came over from the Ukraine, and they came over at the turn of the century. Uh, you know, they didn't have a pot or a window to throw it out. They didn't have a nickel. And his first job was $3 a week, and he had, uh, they got a uh, two-room apartment, fourth floor, up in a tenement, with a toilet down the hall for four or five families. This this is the way he started. Anyway, eventually was able to buy a house in Brooklyn. By that time, it's my I was uh, I was close to being a teenager, and we were. Try- I used to love to hear his stories of the old country of how they'd start off at forty below zero with a horse and wagon, have a couple of shots of vodka to keep them going, and how they snuck across the border to get out of uh, the Ukraine, which was part of Russia then, and walked a good part of that summer through Germany and finally got to Amsterdam, didn't have enough money, and got a job in the shipyards. They lived in one of the uh, tool sheds, which the boss let them stay in. Finally, they saved enough to come to America. But he made it. In his eyes, he certainly did make it because he uh, learned a, a trade. He did very well at it. And as I said, he bought a house. I used to love to hear his stories. And I asked him, I said, what made you come to America? What was the main reason? And he says, well, I came because I was told the streets were paved with gold. So... Uh, I, I, I laughed at him. <laughs> I said, come on, you didn't believe that, Grandpa. And he got angry with me. He grabbed me by the arm, took me over to the front of the house, pointed to the street, that asphalt-paved street, and says, you see that street? That street is paved with gold. And don't you ever forget it. You see you have an uncle who's an engineer, you're an answer school teacher. You're another aunt who's a uh, law secretary. If they stayed in the Ukraine, if I would have just not left the Ukraine, they would have been peasants 
like I was a peasant. They would have married peasants. Their children would have married peasants. Don't tell me these streets are not paved with gold. They are paved with gold, every one of them, and you better not forget it. And that, see, he was, he could really appreciate this country because he made it. In his eyes, he made it. He was still a working man, but he made it in, as a working man. And, uh, Got enough money to buy to build a house to buy a house. So <sighs> love it. Uh, but I love I love this term. He made it. What an interesting concept, right? He made it. Yeah. And, and boy, in his eyes, it was beyond his wildest dreams. <laughs> he could never have believed this. You could never, ever, ever say anything wrong about the country in front of him. He'll jump down your throat. <laughs> What, you talked. You talked about your dad and all the jobs he had. Stop there. Did, oh, yeah. did he? How complain? great is that story? We can stop. How how great is that story? Like, Bud, the streets are paved with gold. Fink, <laughs> incredible man. The full interviews on our, our Facebook page. Just search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook, and you can uh, listen to the whole thing. Gather the family around. That's what I felt like every time I talked to Bud. I feel like I'm just sitting Indian style on the carpet, and he's in the in his in his nice chair. Uh, just, just weaving in and out of his stories, and I love it. I love every second about it. Um, I got a few minutes here, so let me jump back to the previous story because we do end up talking with Bud about his time in um, in Europe and how he became a tank commander at seventeen and how that happened and and all that. Um, and and the last clip we played in the last segment, if you missed it, was about him getting to Normandy and it was freezing cold, and they said rack out, and you just slept right in the disgusting, you know, in the freezing cold mud and all the rest, and. They just did it. No, they didn't complain. They just did it because that's what they had to do. And that's what, that's why he said, and you know what? We fell asleep. <laughs> I want to share a quick story here about how letting your desire for creature comforts can distract you from what's really important. And that's why we have a Slater family rule that you can't complain about being hot, cold, tired, hungry, or bored. It's a story about the Winter War. The Winter War was the Soviet Union versus Finland. In 1939, Finland. So the Soviets attacked a group of Finnish troops. Sneak attack. Totally surprised them. Caught them off guard. And the Soviets, they burst through the trees out of nowhere, and the Finns ran. They were totally unprepared to fight back in that moment. Now, one of the first things that the Soviets did when they took over the camp was to go to the Finns' field kitchen because the cooks were cooking right at that time. And they were cooking these giant pots of sausage soup. And it smelled delicious. And the Soviet troops, they, could, they couldn't help themselves. So instead of continuing after the Finnish soldiers, they shouldered their weapons and ate, poured themselves some soup. Meanwhile, the Finns, they're running away. And eventually they turn back around and they realize they're not getting chased after. So they stop and they regroup. And this group of, of soldiers who were not, I mean, they, they were medics, cooks, and supply sergeants. Sorry, I left that part out. They weren't frontline soldiers. They were medics, cooks, and supply sergeants. They weren't exactly trained for this, but it didn't matter. They regrouped, ran back into their camp, and hand-to-hand combat battled the Soviet soldiers. It's known as the Sausage War. 
500 Soviet soldiers made the attack. Only a few dozen made it back to their side alive. 100 Russians were killed in the field kitchen alone. Their half-eaten bowls of sausage soup lying beside their dead bodies. Now, there's a bunch of life lessons here. In the words of Brett McKay, you know, we, we tend to take our marching orders from our belly. Meaning we tend to get distracted by creature comforts. We hit the snooze instead of working out. We procrastinate. We scroll through Facebook instead of reading a book and all this stuff. But this is made very literal in war. I mean, here were the Soviets who were very much distracted by their bellies, by their desire for creature comforts. Fortunately for us, our World War II veterans were not. They racked out in the freezing cold muddy field and didn't complain about it for a second. Amazing. Again, full interview. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Please check it out. I want to come back and talk a little bit about Trump's speech in Poland and why so many progressives are against it. The whole first two hours of the show today has been about culture and why culture matters. So many different aspects of this conversation. But one of them was a clip we played from Peter Thiel, which talked about multiculturalism and diversity. And multiculturalism is all about hating the West. And diversity is about attacking the West. Um, Two sides of the same coin. So the reason so many progressives hated Trump's speech in Poland the other day is because it talked about civilization and it talked about Western civilization and it defended Western civilization to an audience of people in the West. So for whatever reason, progressives were against that. We'll talk about why we'll read the best parts of Trump's speech and why it's important. Next, Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Again, Mike Slater Show on Facebook to check out the full interview with Bud Fink. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. the next generation of talk radio this is mike slater 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 so just one point in the uh in the name of cultural diversity and learning about other cultures uh there's this this false oppressor oppressed narrative where the white man has always been the oppressor and everyone else everyone else is the oppressed which is absurd um i don't know if we got to it on this show but on my local show last week we talked about some of the atrocities committed by the apache indians just horrible brutal stuff and especially here in san diego but everywhere there's this romanticization of ancient mexican tribes the aztecs incas stuff like that and there's this perception that the aztecs were these peace-loving people and all kumbaya around the campfire before the evil white conquistadors came to town and killed everyone well, right now, there's a massive excavation going on in Mexico City near one of the um, Aztec temples. And archaeologists just discovered this giant structure. It's two stories tall, two stories wide. That's huge. And it has wood columns going up it and then uh, pieces of wood going across it. It's sort of like a, a giant ladder, if you will. Two stories tall, two stories wide. But it wasn't a ladder. 
Uh, it was not a ladder. It was a place to display human skulls of people who were sacrificed at the altar of the gods. So skulls of men, women, and children sacrificed to the gods. A giant tower of skulls. There was actually writings of a Spanish soldier who wrote about this, but we've now found it. But no, no, peace-loving and and wonderful in, in every single way. Meanwhile, it's American civilization and Western civilization that's evil in every single way. I want to talk about Trump's speech in Poland the other day. Uh, it was a fine speech, but a lot of it was talking about civilization and Western civilization. And the left flipped out because to them, they've been trained, they've been taught that our civilization is bad. And not only bad, but uniquely bad. Kids today, high schoolers and college kids today, truly believe that slavery was invented in America. They think it was invented here. And I don't have time to go into the absurdity of that, but that's how far off they are. And that's how deeply ingrained this idea that Western culture and American culture in particular is bad and evil. So we have kids who grew up in that, who are now reporters and commentators, and they hear Trump talk about civilization and Western civilization, and they flip out. This is a writer in the Atlantic. Uh, In his speech in Poland on Thursday, Donald Trump referred to referred 10 times to the West and five times to our civilization. His white nationalist supporters will understand exactly what he means. And it's important that other Americans do too. He says the West is a racial and religious term to be considered Western. A country must be largely Christian, preferably uh, or largely Christian and largely white. Okay. Again, for the sake of time, I won't dignify any of that. This is the line I wanted to read. The most shocking sentence in Trump's speech, the most shocking sentence in Trump's speech, perhaps the most shocking sentence in any presidential speech delivered on foreign soil in my lifetime was the claim that quote, the fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. That's the most shocking sentence that this person's ever heard a president say in his lifetime on foreign soil. The fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. Well, I'll tell you what, based on this writer's response, the answer is no. (laughs) If a majority of people in America feel the same as this guy, then no, the West does not have the will to survive. Because when this kid or guy, whoever is, when, when this guy at the Atlantic hears West the West, he thinks white Christians and therefore conquistadors and bigotry and hatred and all that other nonsense, just like Obama uh, talking about jihad. And he said, well, do I have to remind you about the Crusades? Right? Like that same nonsense. I want to quote a little bit of Trump's speech, if you don't mind, just so you know the context of this all. He said, our adversaries are doomed because we will never forget who we are. And if we don't forget who we are, we just can't be beaten. Americans will never forget. The nations of Europe will never forget. We write symphonies. We pursue innovation. We celebrate our ancient heroes, embrace our timeless traditions and customs, and always seek to explore and discover brand new frontiers. We reward brilliance. We strive for excellence. And we cherish inspiring works of art that honor God. We treasure the rule of law and protect the right of free speech and free expression. 
We empower women as pillars of our society and of our success. We put faith in family, not government bureaucracy at the center of our lives. And we debate everything. We challenge everything. We seek to know everything so that we can better know ourselves. It's all perfect. How can you deny any of that? And above all, we value the dignity of human, every human life, protect the rights of every person and share the hope of every soul to live in freedom. That is who we are. Those are the priceless ties that bind us together as nations, as allies, and as a civilization. What we have today and what we've inherited from our ancestors has never existed to this extent before. And if we fail to preserve it, it will never, ever exist again. So we cannot fail. Last, last line. We have to remember that our defense is not just a commitment of money. It's a commitment of will. Because as the Polish experience reminds us, the defense of the West ultimately rests not only on means, but also on the will of its people to prevail and to be successful. The fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. Do we have the confidence in our values to defend them at any cost? Do we have enough respect for our citizens to protect our borders? Do we have the desire and the courage to preserve our civilization in the face of those who would subvert and destroy it? That's perfect. If I really, I don't want to be rude, but if you have a problem with that, then you really do hate Western civilization. And by extinction yourself. And if that mentality takes over, then we won't survive. Why would we? This is not complicated. Like, just to go back to Bud Fink. Oh, we didn't play this clip. But in the interview, again, you can check it out on our Facebook page. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Uh, He tells the story of Pearl Harbor. And Bud was in Brooklyn. And... They heard over the radio about Pearl Harbor. He didn't even know where Pearl Harbor was. He goes right directly to the military recruitment office down the street. Line around the block. This is Brooklyn, a city block. He said, I'm not exaggerating. A line around the block. Twice over. Boys, in his case. Men standing in line waiting to join the military. He said that it became nighttime. It got dark out and the people, the the military recruiters came outside and said, everyone's got to go home. We'll come back tomorrow. No one moved. No one moved. Everyone stood right there. Moms came back out with bowls of soup and blankets and all the boys and men just sat and slept right there on the sidewalk until the recruitment center opened back up in the morning. Those men had the will to fight. Were they fighting for Western civilization? Yeah. Oh, but later they were fighting about against Germany, against the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Germ- the Nazis were in the West geographically, but they were not, they did not hold Western values. They did not hold Western values. So it was a fight for the West, even though it was against another country in the West. They were not upholding the values that the rest of the West loves and cherishes. So Trump's last question, do you, do we have the desire and the courage to, to preserve our civilization in the face of those who would subvert and destroy it? 
if it's a lot of people on the left you're asking, nope. Because they've been trained, they've been taught that the West is evil and it's nothing worth protecting and prevent and, and then defending. In fact, they're trying to subvert it from the inside. And again, if that mentality takes over, of course we won't survive. How could we? One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. It's amazing that someone would get offended at the question. The question is, does the West have the will to survive against its enemies? And you're like, oh, that's a, like, how could you? Uh. That is such a basic, fundamental question. And the fact that there's that's any controversy at all, I think, proves how far we've uh, we've strayed. Um, I want to end on this point again. A friendly reminder that that interview with Buzz Fink is on our uh, our Facebook page, World War II veteran. Uh, someone just wrote that this should be mandated listening for all. I can't force everyone to listen to it, but I can strongly encourage it. So a couple of days ago, we talked to a farmer, a local farmer here in San Diego. She owned this farm for eh, 10 years or so, and they're going out of business. It was a local organic farm and, and really nice and really popular here in San Diego. So it was interesting that um, they they had to go out of business. And we just got talking about farming, and we were just going on about it, and, and we, we concluded – that there are that farming is important be, for people for all of us because it teaches four important principles patience humility hard work and truth patience hum, it's because it's a process humility because it's not up to you whether or not it rains Hard work, you got to do everything you can. And then just truth. There's just objective truth about things growing or not. And that's just stuff we were thinking out loud on the fly. But patience, humility, hard work, and truth. And it's a problem because we're moving further and further away. Obviously, it's not even we're moving further away. We've completely removed ourselves from an agrarian society where we used to have 99% of Americans. We're farmers now. It's less than 1%, right? So almost no one has this connection to the earth like we, like it used to be everyone. So I did some research about this, and, and I thought of Victor Davis Hanson. And if you listen to the show a lot, you know that I love this guy. He is the world's foremost scholar of ancient military history. And he happens to be a farmer in Fresno. And he lives that life on purpose, the life of a farmer, because he knows the importance of it. And, and the importance of being separate from the bubble that is academia land and city life. And he wrote an essay 20 years ago called Democracy Without Farmers. And the whole thing is way over my head, but I just want to quote uh, two little parts here. He said, no abstract thinker, so no academic, dares to advocate the love of soil, a legacy of hard work, loyalty to family, town, and country, or even loyalty to a common culture. But these are the glues that hold and should hold the people together that make their day-to-day drudgery mean more than the gratification of desire. Oh, no, you say that. and 
One would be dubbed a crank, a misfit, a corny, naive, silly for sure. And why not, right? Everything that we hold dear are mass entertainment, advertising, cars, leisure, music, material wealth, consumer democracy with its moral relativism, academic bromides, and cheap caring. Everything we hold dear are ours precisely and only because we've evolved away from the agrarian ideal and a vibrant countryside. The end of family farming gave us more food and more time, more money, and less shame. <laughs> and that's such a good point, right? It's, it's, I, I'm not, my whole point of this is not that we should all give up our lives and become yeoman farmers, right? But the fact, and because it's good that we don't farm in a way because now we can do other things. But we have to acknowledge the things that we've lost because we are no longer farmers. There's something spiritual about it, right? There's a reason why. There's analogies about seeds and farming throughout the Bible. Last quote here. We are not starving in this country and we need not worry about our food supply, but we are parched and hungry in our quandary over how to be a good citizen whom the Greeks said were ultimately the only real harvest of the soil. Gosh, I love that quote. Think about this. The Greeks knew that the real harvest of the soil was what? Not food. The real harvest of the soil was what you learned that then translated you into being a good citizen. Right? So the real harvest of the soil wasn't lettuce. It was patience, humility, hard work, truth, etc. Things that then translated into being a good citizen. That's what the Greeks knew was the real harvest of the soil. And that is indeed what this country is starving for. So again, I don't, I don't want to quit my job and become a farmer. So the big question is how can you be a yeoman farmer or or, or not be a yeoman farmer and still live these principles and instill these principles in your kids? That's the big question. And I don't have the answer. I don't have the answer other than awareness um, and appreciation which can always be taught and must be taught. And I know you teach, which brings me back to bud. Please go to our Facebook page, Mike Slater show on Facebook and listen to the interview with bud, uh, with your family and make sure your kids understand everything about it. Understand what it meant to be a tank commander at 17 and understand what it meant to grow up in the depression and what that was like. And you can hear the story of bud, uh, eating steak for the first time <laughs> among other awesome, great depression stories. Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Slater Crusaders, I hope you have a great weekend. I will see you next week. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.